open to the book of Ruth together. Uh, what a fun, like, Mother's Day treat, right? We just have these awesome moms in the Bible. Uh, the book of Ruth, we are going to um, enjoy the book of Ruth together this summer. Um, we're just going to enjoy it. There's so many, like, nugs per capita, Ruth is up there for like, there's so many biblical themes and the way it points to Jesus in all these different ways. And uh, so we're going to enjoy it, savor it together this summer. Um, if you didn't notice, it's in the Old Testament. So we're going to spend a lot of time this morning uh, kind of getting acquainted with the Old Testament, how to think through the Old Testament, kind of framing up the Old Testament. It's actually been, believe this, 12 years since we as a church have gone through a book in the Old Testament. We were in Joshua 12 years ago. Uh, anyone here for that? Like two people, three, three, four, five. Uh, so and we're just excited to get into the Old Testament together. Um, I'm going to uh, read just the first part of the first verse. Don't worry, that's not like the whole pace of the book, but we will take our time. But let me just read uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. Let's read it and get into the word of God. It's honestly, you guys, it's a feast this morning. It's too much. We're going to just leave stuffed like, oh my gosh, thank you, God. So here we go. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Truly, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it is powerful. It is alive. It is like bread for our soul. And truly, God, would you satisfy us this morning with, with your word? I ask that you would, you would grow our confidence um, in, in your word, and specifically the Old Testament this morning, Lord, that we would better understand it. I know we have many questions, probably um, been hurt taught different things about it, that we would, we would better understand how to think about it, um, that, that it would create a greater appetite, that it would be so good to be in your word this morning that we would long for more of it, that it would affect our week, that we would get up and just crave your word, Lord. And, and ultimately, would you show us Jesus? Even as we're in the Old Testament, Jesus is all over these pages. And so show us your church, um, more of yourself. Reveal Jesus to us. Help us love Jesus more and walk with Jesus and trust Jesus more uh, because of our time meditating on your word this morning. We love you, Lord. Um, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in the days when the judges ruled is how the book of Ruth begins. Uh, the days when the judges ruled was 400 years. Okay, that's, that's a long time. That's more than America's been a country. 400 years. Uh, and, and remember, try and put yourself back like, okay, what's going on here? Old Testament. Remember, Israel was actually enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. Then God sent Moses. He delivered them. They rebelled. They didn't go into the promised land. And so they, that generation got punished. 40 years went by. Then they finally get to the promised land. They finally arrive, and that begins the book of Judges, okay? Uh, and in fact, I want you to see, like, what this setting is. So actually flip back just one book to Judges, chapter 6. Good old flip back. So nice to hear the Bible pages. No problem if you have an app, but it's nice. It's nice. Judges, chapter 6. So we're going to read uh, verses, let me see here. Where am I? Judges 6. We'll, we'll read. Am I crazy? 
maybe I think I meant Judges chapter 2. That's what I meant. Judges chapter 2, verse 7. Judges chapter 2. We're going to read verses 7 to 15, and that's, this is going to give us like the setting of the days of the judges, okay? Uh, we have it on the screen as well. It says this. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Now, quick pause. Remember, Moses was their leader. He uh, didn't quite make it to the promised land. It was a bummer. God's like, you can look at it, but you need to raise up uh, Joshua. Joshua's going to get the people into the promised land. So Joshua leads them into the promised land, and and that's who Joshua is. So the people served the Lord all all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, oh, sorry, still in the middle there, yeah. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And hear this, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Now, this is, this is what happened to judges. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Next verse. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, which are idols. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And that, oh, we have a little more. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. That is the time of the judges. And it's 400 years of that. It's, it's the most depressing book of the whole Bible. If you try to, like, if you're in the reading plan with us and you're reading it, honestly, people are like, why is this, I feel, why is this here? I didn't want to read that. I don't want to read about that story and then that story and then that story. And so the people of God finally make it to the promised land. And within one generation, the children did not even know, meaning the parents did not teach that generation of who God was and what he was like in his ways. And so a whole new generation arose and became just like the nations around them, and they rebelled against God. And, and this is actually how uh, the end of Moses' life, that's the book of Deuteronomy. He's, he's kind of getting an Old Testament survey here. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses stands up and gives a great sermon, which is the book of Deuteronomy. And he's summing up the whole Exodus. And what he says at the end of Deuteronomy, after he lays everything out in the law and the commandments, he's like, you're going to go to the promised land, and here's what's going to happen. Imagine if he did this. He says, you are all going to rebel against God. And they're like, no, we won't, we won't. And he says, do you know what? God taught me a song. I have to teach you. And it's basically, we're all going to abandon God, and he's going to punish us. And they sing this song, and it's like, that's how. And then Moses dies, and that was like his parting words. And, and it happened. It's like, why is this here? This is so depressing. And what would happen is God would send harm and he, as he warned them. And, and it got the people of Israel to this point where they're like, God, we're sorry. We shouldn't have abandoned you. And then he would raise up a judge, a deliverer, who would deliver them. And they would have peace 
for a few years, and then they would get bored of worshiping the Lord, and they'd rebel against him again, and then God would send more opposition, and then they would get desperate, and they would cry out. And the whole book of Judges is this downward spiral, things getting worse and worse and worse. God's continually sending a judge, a deliverer, to rescue them, but they continue to rebel against him. And I want you to see how the book of Judges ends. So flip ahead uh, to Judges chapter, I think it's 21. Look at the very last verse of the book of Judges. This is the setting for Ruth. The very last verse of this 400-year period says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's just this discouraging, the promised land's ruined, everyone's doing whatever they want. And it, it, that statement is this longing for a king. Like, you hear that? There was no king. There's just this longing, oh, if only there was a king who, who could keep people worshiping the Lord. And then the very next page is the book of Ruth. Now, the theme of the book of Ruth, it, it happened sometime in these 400 years of just brutality and apostasy and people doing whatever they want, we get this story of Ruth. And it's like, this, it's like a candle, like in the darkness. It's just this little bit of hope we see. And that the theme of Ruth is God's sovereign hand to prepare a king after his very own heart. And, and uh, I don't want to spoil the ending, but he does it. He prepares a king after his very own heart. And, and actually, I won't ruin everything, but flip to the end of Ruth, Ruth chapter four. What's the very last word in the book of Ruth? David. David. Which is funny because it skips over Saul. There was another king who didn't love the Lord because the point is God is raising up a king after his own heart. In the midst of this darkness and this chaos, we see the sovereign hand of God. In in the life of this family and this drama and tragedy, God is preparing for a king. Now, before we even dig deeper into Ruth, we're going to end with with, uh, probably the nug of Ruth. Um, We need to notice and think clearly about the fact that Ruth is in the Old Testament. Uh, I know many questions arise when we think about the Old Testament. Um, Many questions such as this. Is it really as important as the New Testament? Doesn't it show us a different picture of God? And doesn't God somehow change from the old to the new? Like, isn't it the Old Testament's like, oh yeah, the grumpy God. And then like, but then finally his loving son comes in the New Testament and is like, hey, like calm down God and let me like love everybody. Isn't that how the New Testament, Old Testament works? And, and doesn't the Old Testament show us this outdated way of salvation by works? And, and so now we're saved by Jesus. And so why would we even read it? Why would we even bother with it? And, and, and won't we get confused by, and, and start thinking weird things about salvation. And and here's the last one that's maybe the most pertinent for us in our culture today. Do we need to believe these things actually happened? Or or are they just good stories teaching us spiritual truths, but they don't have to necessarily like be literally true? And if you're telling me I'm supposed to believe that this stuff happened, 
what are we to do with the things that clearly contradict science, such as evolution? Or you're telling me the, the, a flood covered the whole earth, like the mountains of Southern California were, were covered by water, or the Red Sea parted and people walked through on dry ground, dry ground or, or bread fed 2 million people for 40 years and it just fell out of the sky? Or what about the guy who lived in a whale for three days? Like, are you telling me I have to believe in that stuff? And these are, these are good questions that we will face uh, from our society, our culture, and even within the church. How do we rightly think about the Old Testament? Uh, Britt said this once, the Old Testament is 76% of your Bible. Imagine if you have a spouse that you just ignored them 76% of the time. Just imagine that. Like, no, I'll listen to them about, you know, a quarter of what they say. I'll consider it, right? Imagine if we did that. That doesn't work. And, and, and so we're going to think deeply about the Old Testament. We have six points from Scripture about how to think rightly about the Old Testament, and it's going to inform this study in Ruth. And so the first point is this. The Old Testament was Jesus, Jesus' Bible, Jesus had a Bible. It was the Old Testament. Did you know that? If it, uh, let, me, let me say this. If you ever have a question about life or relationships or just anything, an awesome place to start is, what does Jesus say about this? Um, if you were to, let's say Jesus did a quick, just came down for a quick visit, reality carp, second service, shook hands, just took a Q&A, and someone was like, Jesus, um, what is your favorite story in the Old Testament? Do you know what Jesus could say? Uh, the what? You'd be like, the favorite story in the Old Testament. He'd be like, huh? Oh, you mean the scriptures? Oh, you mean the, the Bible? Oh, you're, you mean what's my favorite story in the word of God? And then he would tell you whatever his favorite story is. You see, Jesus didn't view the Old Testament as this old, confusing, outdated book. It was his Bible. He loved, he breathed, he fed on. He, if he like, the word of God just came out of him. The Old Testament was constantly coming out of him. And I, I want to show you this. This is, this is important to understand. Okay, this is such a cool, uh, this will build your confidence in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus' Bible had the same exact content as your Old Testament. Every book from Genesis to Malachi. And he referred to the, the canon as this closed book of the Bible. Jesus put his stamp on the Old Testament and said, all of that is the word of God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus looked at it. And, and I want to I show, show you this. So uh, we're going to do a lot of turning today. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 11. It's in the New Testament after Matthew and Mark. Uh, Luke chapter 11. And we're going to read a few verses in verse 49 to 51. This seems like an offhand comment Jesus makes. But in this comment, I'll read it and then I'll show you it. I, I didn't know this. I was taught this. This is so, it's, it's, it's awesome. In this statement, Jesus puts his stamp of approval on the whole Old Testament. Like this is the word of God. So I'm gonna read Luke 11, verse 49 to 51. He's, he's talking to people who reject the word of God. And this is what he says. 
Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." Now, it can easily be like, what, what? Okay, I guess he doesn't want people rejecting the word of God. But when he says this, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, this is, this is so cool. So a, a quick background detail, the, the Jewish Bible had all the same books, but in a slightly different order. Um, have you ever been confused about the order of the Old Testament? I have. It's like, okay, so you're like in a storyline, and now like Psalms and stuff, and then there's like like all these little prophets. You're like, what's going on here? I don't know. The, the Jews put uh, the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, at the very end of the Old Testament. And it was kind of like a summary of the whole thing. It was like, here's like where we are at. And at the very end of Second Chronicles, is, it's the last prophet who was murdered. The very end of the Old Testament book, <laughs> there's a sad scene where a prophet Zechariah is murdered for speaking the word of God. And what Jesus said here from the blood of Abel, does anyone remember what book Abel's from? Book of Genesis, Cain and Abel. He's the first innocent, he was the first like uh, prophet whose blood was shed to the, the blood of Zechariah, who's at the very end, the last verses of the last book of the Bible. He says, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, all of that blood will be required of this generation. And what Jesus is doing here is, is saying like, that's the Old Testament. This is the scriptures. This is, he's, to the Jews, he's like, you know, the beginning and the end, all of it, that is the word of God. Jesus looked at the Old Testament and was like, that is the word of God. And I want, I want us to see this. It wasn't just Jesus. If for whatever reason, you don't like Jesus, but you like Paul, um, I want to show you that this point is also made later in the New Testament. So the second, the second big truth is this. The, the, the Old Testament is the New Testament's Bible, okay? This wasn't just Jesus. The, all the, the apostles, all of the disciples also viewed the Old Testament as their Bible, uh, I'm going to read us uh, out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in this passage, Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, a disciple, about the word of God. Uh, and this is what he says. As for you, and let me just say this, this is the word of God to you as well. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to you through Paul. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which pause, what would he be referring to there? The Old Testament as the sacred writings, unpause, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Pause. He says the Old Testament sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. If all we had was the Old Testament, it would be enough to make us wise for salvation in Jesus. That's amazing. And then he says this, this popular verse we know about. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And he's, we know that that's true of the New Testament as well, but I want us to specifically notice that that's true of the Old Testament, that the Old Testament, the book of Ruth that we will be in, will be profitable for you. It's breathed out by God for you to teach you, correct you, train you in righteousness. And one more thing I want us to notice here in this verse 
is where he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. That another way other translations say is inspired. It's that word for breath. And what Paul is saying here is that all of scripture is from God. It's from, it's like the, the, the very words of God. God breathed it. But some people would say, well, wasn't it written by like, uh, if, if, they're, if they're educated, they would say about 35 authors over a period of 3,500 years. And we would say, yes, that is true. There was about 35, we believe, authors. And it was about 3,500 years that, that covered the writing of this book. But, but hear what the Bible says of itself. It is no ordinary book, and these are no ordinary authors. All of this book was breathed out by God. Peter clarifies, he makes his point uh, in 1 Peter chapter 20. Listen to this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Pause. Someone may say, well, that's your interpretation. To which we say, that's not, where, that's not what matters, is what you think about it. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This book is a mystery, and it's a miracle, and what we know is though there were human beings in real time, space, history, in real places, writing letters and stories to real people, it is also breathed out by God, and these authors were not writing or speaking from their own will or mind. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying inspired. Another way of saying God breathed. Uh, one of, probably the best metaphor I've heard, I read in a, in a book about how to understand the nature of scripture and, and humans being used is, is you guys, have, has anyone been in a, an old church with stained glass windows? I've never been, I've heard that they exist. And so there's this, you know, picture sitting there in stained glass and you're sitting in a pew and the light's coming in. And so picture, you have this pure sunlight coming, coming into the window and then it passes through, you know, various colors and various shapes that have been designed by an artist. And then the light reflects beautifully exactly as it was designed to reflect, okay? So you're looking at this light. The word of God is like, it comes from God. It's like, the, it's like the sun, light pure coming from the sun. But then God passes it through real authors, which is like the stained glass. And so they maintain the, their personalities, their different shapes and colors and sizes. They were put there at different times. And this is important. They didn't put themselves there and write what they wanted. They were put there as a stained glass would be by an artist designed, crafted. God crafted every author, every period in history, every personality, so that when the word passed through that moment and that person, it, it, they were authentically writing, but it was such that it was from God. And it was exactly what God wanted it to look like, a masterpiece. We have a book that passed through human time and space and people and personalities, but it's from God. It's God breathed. There is not a word in this book that is not here that God, God doesn't want. There's not a, a single will of man saying, you know, I think it was like this, or I think it should be like this. This is God's word from God. It's, it, this, what, what we have is 
unbelievable. The psalmist says it's more to be desired than gold, much fine gold. He's like, if I could take a million dollars or a Bible, I would take a Bible. This is the very word of God. It satisfies my soul. It nurtures me. It teaches me about God, about my life, about salvation and Jesus. Like, this is from God. That Jesus viewed it as the Bible of the Old Testament, and the, the New Testament viewed it as the, the Bible, as the words of God. Now, number three, the important thing to know about the Old Testament is that it really happened. Now, uh, I got to tell you right now, I'm going to try and temper myself. I can get a little worked up about this, um, but I will try to be humble. Okay, about 200 or so years ago, uh, there was a movement in the church, um, you could call it liberal Christianity, you could call it progressive Christianity, uh, where people began to um, learn about science, learn, oh, wow, like gravity is a thing and the planets spin around the earth and they're, you know, we're, we're learning things about the world. And then uh, we began to think, well, you know, like stuff in the Bible does not fit with science. Like how, how, could, how could this happen? And, and so what began to be taught in churches and in schools, colleges, seminaries, etc., is that it, when it comes to the Old Testament, it's actually, this is what they would say, it's actually not uh, important that these things literally happened in history. That's not God's intent. That's not the author's intent. It's kind of like a parable, they would say. We all know when Jesus told us a parable that these things didn't really happen they were just, you know, a nice story, but, but, it, but it's still the word of God and it still teaches us truth, but, it's, but it didn't have to happen. We all know Jesus told parables. In fact, you know, Genesis, it's like a beautiful story, poetry, a parable, um, but like they didn't have to really, Adam and Eve didn't have to actually exist. Um, Cain and Abel didn't have to be real people. They were kind of metaphors for early humanity. Things like Noah and the flood, we all know like that's just you know, it wouldn't rain that much. We all know Jonah couldn't be swallowed by a whale. We know this. And so they would say, listen, and I'll tell you this, I've heard this with my own ears within the last few weeks from uh, people with PhDs. That's a lovely story, but we all know it's fiction. This is, this is what is taught. Very, very popular, very, very common. We know the Old Testament. It's a lovely story. Yes, it's the word of God, uh, but we know it's fiction. And that's okay. It doesn't need to be real. And, and this came about because, you know, they realized Christians kind of seem crazy when they, like, because they would say, listen, we all know snakes don't talk. We all know humans can't ride inside of whales. We all know people don't really rise from the dead. Do you hear that? Do you see that? Do you see what's happening? We know scientifically that couldn't happen. So, so it didn't need to happen. It's still a valuable thing for our lives. Um, now, I have many opinions on this, but you don't need mine. You need Jesus's. So we're going to look at the words of Jesus together. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 24. Thankfully, Jesus speaks about this. All right, we'll read a few verses out of Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. Jesus says this, for as were the days of Noah, does anyone remember what book Noah's in? Genesis chapter six. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware of the flood until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Let me ask you, does this make sense? For as in the days of that story that didn't really happen, but is true, so I will not really come, but, you know, like spiritually speaking. It doesn't make sense. He links his second coming in history with the historical human beings who lived in the days of Noah. You can't honestly read the words of Jesus here and, and, he, and, and think he's saying, well, we all know that didn't happen, but you know, in that story that, that's, that we made up, uh, just as that story is made up but true, so I'll come back. This, this, he's literally linking and he, and he goes into detail. They were eating, they were drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Here, here's a, a helpful thing. Uh, good biblical scholarship says parables are generally about one point. When Jesus told a parable, we're not supposed to like, you know, pick it apart and, and be like, okay, this is every little detail. A parable tells us one truth. If uh, the Old Testament, the, the story of Noah was a parable, it would not be good Bible reading for Jesus to then say, well, you know, they're probably eating and drinking in the parable and, you know, they're probably married and giving and married. This is not how parables work. Jesus said he's referring to literal people doing stuff like eating and drinking that existed in history. And I want us to see it one more place. Uh, Turn back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 40 and 41. All right. What does Jesus think about about Jonah? Let's see. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It sure seems like Jesus is linking his death and resurrection with Jonah being in a whale for three days and three nights. And it sure seems like the literal men of the city of Nineveh will rise up and judge Jesus's generation. And it would not make sense for Jesus to say, just as that didn't happen, but it's spiritually true and it's a good story, it's a lovely story, and it's the word of God. You know, it didn't need to happen. These make-believe people will come and, and, and judge my generation. And, you know, I'll go into the heart of the earth, so to speak, but I don't need, literally need to come back from the grave. It, it seems here, in fact, it doesn't seem, it is clear as day. Jesus is saying Jonah and Noah were real people in real history. Now, again, if you don't like Jesus and you like Paul, flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We actually have another case of this fundamentalism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now it's sarcasm. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Paul is referring to the people of Moses, uh, Israel in the desert, as they were getting manna and as they were walking. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. I don't have it on the screen. It says this. Now these things took place. 
I mean, we could honestly just stop there and say, huh, the word of God says that this happened. And then he goes on, they took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And, and then again, verse 11, therefore, uh, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. These things happened. Just hear the way the Bible refers to itself. These things happened. Now, you know, people can't live in Wales generally. And people don't generally walk through, you know, the channel to, you know, Channel Islands on dry land. It just doesn't happen. But let me ask us this question. Do we believe in God? Do we believe God created the universe out of nothing? Do do we think it's too hard for the God who made all things to split open the Red Sea or use a a whale to carry a man or lead a whole city of Nineveh into repentance? And, And since when was it incredible that God would raise Jesus from the dead? Church, we believe in a powerful living God. And we believe in a powerful, true Bible that teaches us true things, not just spiritually nice things, but they didn't need to happen. Like the, the word of God itself testifies that everything in it is true. Jesus said of the Bible, the scripture cannot be broken. In John chapter 10, the scripture cannot be broken. If you want to cut out one little piece, you've, you've ruined the scripture, Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. He says, not an iota or a dot will pass away. Not even crossing a T of of any letter in the Old Testament will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Church, we can believe that this is not just the word of God. It's true. It happened. And it is the foundation of our faith. Paul said, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, we're wasting our time. We're the most to be pitied. But he did rise from the dead. And the word of God is true. Don't lose your confidence in the word of God. And to be fair, to society who doesn't believe in God, it makes sense they wouldn't believe these things. It makes perfect sense. But we who believe and trust in God, have, we have privileged information about how the universe is running, where it came from, how it all fits together. We, we've, we've heard God has revealed to us the way things are. Now, we're humble. This isn't God doesn't hate science. He made science. Science is just studying the way he's done things. We, we're not antagonistic in that sense. But, but we know that the word of God is true. And God is actually able to, you know, do a miracle once in a while. He's God. Now, number four. Uh, so we view Jesus, the, the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. The New Testament, it was referred to the Old Testament as the Bible. It, it really happened. And now this is really important for us, especially within the church. We, we get funny ideas about God. And so here's the, the fourth thing we need to know. The Old Testament reveals the same God as the New Testament. This is important. Um, it's generally said, you know, okay, God was, you know, different in the Old Testament, or he was, you know, meaner in the Old Testament. There was a lot of judgment in the Old Testament, but thankfully Jesus came and he, he kind of made God more palatable. Um, that's a common misperception of God in the Old Testament, but it's not true. And in fact, I would even go as far to say, I think that's the, I think that 
idea has its origin in the, the original lie that Satan had in the garden. You remember Satan in the garden to Adam and Eve, the very first people. He said this, don't eat from the tree. He said, it's not, he said this, it's not true that you will die. It's not God, what God said isn't true. And, and then he started casting doubt on who God's character was. God's not really good. God, the God's holding out on you. He knows you'll become like him. He doesn't, he's keeping good things from you. Take this fruit. And then you, here's the other thing. This is amazing. God told Adam, don't eat from this, from this fruit or you will surely die. That's judgment language. That's love. I mean, it's like me telling my one and a half year old son, who I think he understands me, son, you can't climb the ladder to the top of the garage anymore because you may die. And so you can't do that. God in love was telling them, don't disobey me or you will die. And what Satan does is he lies to us about judgment. And I want us to hear this. It's actually from the enemy who says, you will not surely die. You don't need to trust God. You don't need to think he's good. You won't die. And so this idea that God isn't good and can't be trusted and there's not really judgment, that all came from Satan at the very beginning. And we're still tempted to think some of those things even now, that God isn't good. He can't be trusted. I won't really die. There won't be consequences for my sin. And I want us to see the Bible say this explicitly, uh, that the, the Old Testament reveals the same God as the new. In Malachi 3, verses 6, this is what God says of himself. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Jesus would say, uh, or I think it was of Jesus, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus hasn't changed, the Father hasn't changed, the Spirit hasn't changed. At the beginning of Genesis, as God was there and he spoke his word, which is the picture of the Son and the Spirit was hovering, all three of the Trinity were there from Genesis 1, chapter 1, all the way to the end. They have not changed. God has not changed. The Trinity has not changed. Now, but here's the thing that makes it difficult for us is is there is judgment in the Old Testament. And that's, that's hard for us. And it, it makes it easier for us sometimes to think, okay, let's explain away the judgment. Maybe God's different. Maybe he does things differently. Um, and, and even in, so Malachi 3.6, I don't change. The very, the verse right before it, Malachi 3.5 says this. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. What we see in the Old Testament is a holy, just God. And he says, if you, if you abuse widows and the fatherless, like, I'm going to draw near for judgment. I care about them. I will protect them. And then he goes on to say, for I am the Lord. I do not change. And, and can we go back to that verse 6? Uh, what's amazing about this, because God doesn't change, we aren't consumed. Do you hear that, how significant that is? Because God doesn't change, therefore, we are not consumed. What that means is, as a Christian who stands forgiven by the blood of Jesus, it is good news that he doesn't change his mind about, nah, you've messed up too much. I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to change. Now you're consumed. Our salvation can be assured to our souls because God keeps his word and his promises, and he never changes. We change. 
We keep messing up. We're like, I love you, Lord. And the next day we're rebelling against him. Same as all the people in the Old Testament, but God is faithful to forgive sinners. Now, I want to I wanna make this a little bit even harder for us. I want us as a church to be prepared for one of the hardest questions that we will get asked about the Old Testament. Maybe you even have a hard time with it. I just want us to look at it together and be honest about it. Um, here's the question. Okay, what about God wiping out whole peoples? What about Noah and the flood killing everyone but eight people? What about the judgment of, of, of Canaan and Joshua went in there and, and killed every male, woman, and child? That's a good question. And we need to know, we shouldn't just, oh, I'm just not gonna look at the Old Testament. Like we need to know how to think rightly about this. So it's gonna be a little bit hard to hear on some level, but we can trust this is true. This is the word of God. So the first thing to notice about these stories of say, you know, uh, the conquest of Canaan and the Noah's flood, and there are others, is that the Bible wants us to notice that it, this wasn't a out of the blue, God had a bad day, I'm wiping people out. That's not, that's not the storyline. It's not a group of innocent people who are, you know, doing their best, and then God's just like, well, I'm, I'm over you, and he just wiped. That's, that's not the story. The Bible shows us that, that I'll just read it. Uh, Genesis 6, this is the, the context of, of the story of Noah. It says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. I mean, can't we testify to that? Yes, we can. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then verse seven, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. You see, there's a connection here as difficult as it is to wickedness and the judgment of God. And I want us to see it again uh, with the conquest of Canaan. So God told Abraham, hey, I'm gonna, you're gonna have a, 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 I'm gonna bless your family. They're gonna become a great nation and they're gonna have a promised land. And, and you know, we, even now politically, it's like, well, who should have the land? And this doesn't seem fair. This is not, this isn't that. Look, look what's happening here. Uh, God talks to Abraham. He, he, he foreshadows them getting the land. And look what he says in Genesis chapter 15. He's talking about his people after Egypt. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, which that's a biblical way of of 100 years. So 400 years. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see that? You see what that is? This is very similar to Noah. The Amorites weren't, you know, good, innocent, happy people going about their way. And then all of a sudden Joshua showed up and wiped them out. That's, that's actually not what happened. What happened was, as we know of the people of Canaan, that number one, um, God, God was actually patient with them. God's like, do you know what? It wouldn't be right for me to wipe them out yet. I, their iniquity isn't complete. Their iniquity will reach a point where it is so much, and, and it's brutal, the things that we know. I mean, things like child sacrifice and incredible injustice, things that, that were horrible. God said, I'm going to use Joshua and Israel, my people, in a specific moment to be my judgment over them. And, and the significant thing, thing is this. As difficult as it is to hear, the judgment of God is good. God cares about evil, and, and he wants to do something about it. And Jesus picks up the theme of judgment far more often than we are comfortable with. And uh, in a similar story where like a tower, uh, like it was an accident, fell on 18 people and it killed them. 
people were asking Jesus, Jesus, how do we think about this? Was it their sin? Were they getting directly punished by God in that moment? Um, it's a similar question. Why, why do these bad things happen to people? And this is what Jesus says. He says, truly I say to you, unless you repent, so too you will receive judgment. Jesus is not uncomfortable with, with the fact that the day will come when God will, will judge evil in the world, when he will make all things right and, and not a single sin will go unpunished. And the Bible shows us that the reason why that judgment doesn't happen right now is actually the mercy of God. That, man, if, if apart from the mercy of God, not one of us should be here right now. But God is merciful and patient. And he, his heart isn't vengeful. I just want to wipe them out. He's patient so that they would come to know Jesus. I want you to see this. This is God's heart. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. We're like, please, Jesus, come back. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. That's crazy. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. When we see these difficult stories in the Old Testament and honestly, even the new, um, Ananias and Sapphira, we're we're getting a, a, a foretaste of that day, the day of the Lord, when God comes to make judgment. But, but what I want us to know, I mean, we just looked at pretty much the hardest thing in the Bible. What I want us to notice is not the constant judgment in the Bible, though it is there, is the overwhelming mercy and patience and grace and love of God to those who want nothing to do with him. That is the storyline of the Bible, that he would spare Adam and Eve. They blatantly, they listened to Satan. They rebelled against God and God came to them, didn't wipe them out as they deserved. He killed an animal and they realized they were, they were naked and ashamed and it says he covered them. He brought this new covering on them and it was this picture of atonement of forgiveness, these new robes of righteousness, so to speak, that God would have mercy on the first sinners. Even that God would spare anyone in the flood was mercy, The fact that he would rescue Israel out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb, and then even as they rebelled against him continuously for years and years, that he would continue to pursue them in love. That even in the midst of human evil, we would have a book like Ruth, where we see the hand of God working all things to bring about a Messiah, to make all things right. And... Truly, I want us to see this, this verse to wrap up this point in Nehemiah. When, when he talked about his forefathers and rejecting God, but the, the mercy of God, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter nine. We'll close the point on this. So Nehemiah is early in the New Testament, kind of. No, I'm wrong. Where is it? No, it's late. Where is it? Ezra, Nehemiah. It's like the middle, somewhere in there. See, the Old Testament's hard. Where is Nehemiah? Where is it actually? So there's this thing in the front of your Bible called a table of contents. And you know, you can look there, look down, Nehemiah 587. Okay, it's 587 for me. All right, there it is. Nehemiah chapter 9. Hey, 
Okay, no shame about the table of contents. Or how about the tabs, right? Anybody tabs? A couple people tabs? I don't know. They're nice. Okay. Nehemiah sums up this point that though we deserve judgment, look at the character of God in the Old and the New Testament. Nehemiah 9.17. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Because he didn't forsake them, we are here, rescued by that same mercy of God. So we've seen the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. It was the New Testament viewed it as the Bible. It was history. It really happened that God is the same in the old and the new. And oh yeah, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. The, the, the fifth point, that the Old Testament reveals the same way of salvation. Did you know that? Did you know, you've probably heard, that the Old Testament, as you work through it, is filled with picture after picture of salvation, of the grace of God. And you can boil the entire Bible from every story in the Old Testament to the New with the whole concept of salvation. You can boil it down to this statement. We are saved by trusting in the grace of God. That we are saved by trusting in the grace of God. Those in the Old Testament didn't know the full story. They didn't know the name of Jesus, but they trusted in the saving, forgiving grace of God. You remember Abraham? It says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His trust, I trust you, God. Whatever you say, I trust you. It was counted to him. He was, grace and mercy was extended to Abraham. Israel in bondage on the night of the Passover believed God. And so they slaughtered a lamb and they put blood out on the doorposts as a picture of their trust in God and the wrath and holiness of God passed over them. And they were saved and rescued and brought into the promised land. After that, Israel believed God and so participated in the system of a sacrificing of animals and priests and displaying God's forgiveness. This was their their trust in God that he was gracious. And, and, and we can often think people were saved by works in the Old Testament, but now we're saved by grace. But it's never been so. People have always been saved by the grace of God. Hebrews tells us, you know that whole sacrificial system? It actually never took away sin. What the sacrificial system represented was trust in the ways and word of God that God could remove my sin. And, and an incredible, like, this is a mind-bending, time-warping thing. The Old Testament saints were saved by the blood of Jesus. They didn't know his name yet, but they trusted in God. And they trusted he could make a way to forgive them of their sins. And so as Jesus hung on the cross, he was receiving the punishment for my sin and our sin and the sins of Abraham and David. The sins of every saint in the Old Testament were poured out on Christ. Because only through the blood of Jesus can anyone be saved. And so the Old Testament was just picture after picture after picture of Jesus on the cross. And his blood, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, or a priest who would go bring us as a mediator before a holy God. And so one pastor uh, 
Tim, Tim Keller was quoting one of his favorite Bible teachers. He said, Christians and the Old Testament saints can say this together. Look at this paragraph. This is just beautiful. We can say this along with Israel. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and he let us out. Now we are on the way to the promised land. We are not there yet, of course, but we have the law law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. The Old Testament is just shadows, pictures, getting us ready for Jesus. And every person has always been saved by the saving blood of Jesus. And they just trust in God and they say, I know you can forgive me. David's like, I know you're merciful. I know you can make a way to forgive me of my sin. And so we've seen Jesus viewed the Old Testament as scripture. The the rest of the apostles did as well. They viewed it as history, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that the way of salvation is the same. And the last thing we see about the Old Testament, and therefore Ruth, is, is it is always only all about Jesus. The Old Testament doesn't just show us it's the same way to be saved. It's about a person, about Jesus. Remember what Paul said to Timothy, the Old Testament, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, It's been said, you could view the whole Bible as this. The Old Testament's preparing for Jesus. The gospels put Jesus on display. And then the rest is just explaining and anticipating Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead and he was on that road with these two disciples and they thought Jesus is dead, our Messiah is like, what's happening? And then Jesus begins to explain to them, this is what the Old Testament said would have to happen. I would die on the cross for the sins of the world that anyone who trusted in me would be forgiven. And then it says this, Luke 24, 25, This is the best Bible study ever given. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Church, if only we could go through every book of the Bible, and see all of the things concerning Jesus and his death on a cross and his grace for sinners. And, and that's what you can do when we read the Old Testament. We, we see it's actually all about Jesus. And, and that brings us back to Ruth. Um, flip back open to the book of Ruth. I want us to see uh, the big picture that's going to frame how we read the book of Ruth. Uh, as it began with that phrase, uh, in the days when the judges ruled, and remember judges, it was like there was no king and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The, the Holy Spirit gave us this book. Now, now here's what, let's turn to the end of the book of Ruth. Let's, let's turn to Ruth chapter four, verse 13. Little bit doing like the cardinal sin on a good story, but... Um, but we need to know this to read the story. We're going to read Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Here's what it says. So Boaz took Ruth 
and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons and has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then again, we get a genealogy of David, knowing that's what this story is about. And look at the last word of the book of Ruth is David. And and, and what this story is telling us is that through all of the drama, through all of the sin, through all of the rebellion in the time of the judges, God was at work, sovereignly orchestrating the birth of the heir to the greatest King David and then the King of Kings, Jesus. Now, now here's where this matters for us. This is how we're gonna end. The way Ruth's life and story goes and the way the whole Old Testament goes is the way every life and story goes. God is at work. In every minuscule detail, we're gonna read of tragedy and unexpected circumstances and heartbreak. We're gonna read of twists and turns and unexpected circumstances, but we see that God is at work, and not only is God at work, that it ends by bringing glory to the name of Jesus. The way Ruth goes is the way your life goes if you are son and daughter of God. Every detail, every tragedy, every unexpected circumstance, even in a world where people are turning from God and going their own way, God is at work in your life, in every detail of your life to bring about glory for the name of Jesus. And and we need to know this. While Ruth is a good story, it's even romance and, you know, ends happily ever after, The climax of Ruth is not that she gets a husband and a child and everyone's happy. It doesn't end there. The the, the point, the climax of the story of Ruth is that it leads to Jesus. And that is what is true about your life. We are not promised spouses and children and easy lives, but we are promised that Jesus brings meaning to our lives and our suffering. And there will be a day when we see him face to face and we'll look back at our life and see the wonderful hand of God working in our lives for his glory. And we learn, like Ruth, that we are just a footnote in the great story that is about Jesus. Your life will be frustrating until you realize you are a footnote in the story of Jesus. It's not about you or your happiness. God loves you. He wants to bless you. But sometimes, like Naomi, he may take things from you. Sometimes, like Ruth, things may not be certain. Your future may not be secure. But like Ruth and every child and daughter, son and daughter of God, it will all end in the glory of Jesus. That is why we are here. That is why we exist, to prop up the person in the name of Jesus. It all makes sense one day when we see it glorifying Jesus. All our sorrows and our suffering, and our confusion, and our lack 
will be included into the story of Jesus. And so, uh, just so practical, listen, in your life right now, we can't be surprised when our life looks like the lives of Ruth and Naomi. And, and here's another one. We shouldn't judge our circumstances too soon, right? Like something hard happens and we immediately start judging if this is good or bad and what's going on. Like we need to take a step back and think, no, this is a part of like the greater story about Jesus, that there will be seasons when, when things don't make sense. And we won't know what God is up to. This story, we know the ending. They didn't know the ending. They didn't know what God was up to. And, and just for clarification, we're not talking about chosen suffering or suffering because of sin. There will just simply be times in your life when you will suffer in a way you can't escape it. That will come. Jesus assures us of it. But we can trust that God is at work in every circumstance, to bring glory to Jesus, to make us more like Jesus, to make our lives meaningful as they're brought into the story of Jesus. And therefore, you can trust him. He's good. He's at work. He is a great savior and redeemer, a great provider, a great satisfier of your soul. So I'm going to pray for us. Uh, And then the second set will be a time for us just to put our our deeper trust. Jesus, I trust you. I see how the story ends and I trust you. So so Lord, right now, would you you let your word go down deep into us? It's it's sharp. It's a double-edged sword. Sometimes it's difficult to hear, but we know that you are good, that you are holy and perfect and mighty. And even though we are not good, you have sent your son for us and you have poured all of our sins on his shoulders on the cross 2,000 years ago. And if we trust in you, Jesus, we are completely forgiven and righteous. And we are also assured that our lives will have significance as we bring glory to you, Jesus. Lord, I pray right now that you would give us supernatural ears that, that love the sound of your voice, that love the sound of your word. Lord, that we would view this book that we're going to be in together, the book of Ruth and the whole Old Testament, as your word to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us a hunger and thirst to be fed by you and your word. And that even as we will walk through um, difficult parts of the story, we know that it ends with Jesus. We know that it ends with significance and hope that we are brought into the family of God. You are our father. Jesus, you are our brother. We have many brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ. Thank you that we are brought in to something that will last for eternity, will never be taken away. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for how it gives life. Thank you for how it gives us Jesus. Jesus, now would you be glorified in our midst? Would we trust you? Please, may we not be like those who did what, do, do what's right in our own eyes. Would we not be like those who reject your word or pick and choose what we like in your word? Would we trust you in all of your character and all of your goodness and all of your ways? 